We're going to keep uh, diving into the series we started last week, and who's, who knows the name of this series? The screen gives it away for you, right? All right, that's your freebie. That's your freebie for today. We started this series called Labyrinth, and I, I do want to quickly, as, as quickly as possible, recap um, just a little bit of last week in case A, you weren't here, or B, you're like me and need to be reminded of this because, again, if we missed the first week, going into these next few weeks, it's probably not going to make a lot of sense. So... We talked about this cathedral in Chartres, France, right? And outside of this cathedral that was built in the medieval ages, right, they, they have this outdoor labyrinth, you know, and there's a, we saw pictures of this. So they walk outside, you know, you'll, through this to get on the lower gardens to get to the cathedral, which is up on the hill. And then once they enter the cathedral, they see another labyrinth. And in our brains, we often think, well, you know, a maze and a labyrinth are the same thing, and they're two completely different things, and a labyrinth is more of like a walking path. There's not necessarily high walls and everything like that. But what is the difference between a maze and a labyrinth? Does anyone remember? Shout it out. Paul, you got it. That's right. That's right. Paul's got it. No dead ends in a labyrinth. Whereas a maze, we've all seen mazes. We've all done puzzles on the back of, you know, uh, you go to like a Denny's or something like that, and there's all the kids' menus or whatever. You turn that little kids' paper that comes on the tray over, and there's always a maze, right? There's always a maze and tic-tac-toe. We, we know what mazes look like. You, there's one way in, and there's dead ends and turns, and sometimes they have multiple exits. A labyrinth is not that. A labyrinth is one way in and one destination. Let's put out this picture, because I didn't have it for first service last week, but this is the overhead view in case you were here first service last week, this is the overhead view of the labyrinth that is inside that Chartres Cathedral over there in France. So you see there's one way in, right? And there's also one destination. And we talked about that from John chapter 14, verse 1 through 7, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, right? So one way, one truth, one life. A lot like a labyrinth, right? The opposite of a maze. See, the world is a maze out there, and life on the level gets you lost. Imagine if you were walking you know, up to a maze, and you weren't looking down at it, but you were actually having to choose by walking up to endless walls left or right. How would you know? You wouldn't. You would get hopelessly, hopelessly lost. The only way to complete a maze is by looking at it from above, right? Well, guess what? That's the perspective that we need to have. We have one way, one truth, one life, not through a maze, but through a labyrinth. There's no dead ends. There's no wrong turns. There's no hesitations or multiple exits. We also looked at Luke chapter 18, verse 18, and where Jesus says it's easier for a camel to enter the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That may be a weird scripture to start with for this series, but I think it's one that we've got to get in our brains because a lot of us, a lot of Christians, get so hung up on the rich man part and the eye of a needle and a camel fitting through that, that they miss the kingdom of God part. And I think that's what Jesus is actually wanting to emphasize in that, because you can't buy your way into this labyrinth relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're walking with Jesus, you're, you have entered the labyrinth, yes, right? Doesn't sound that much better than a maze, but once we know the difference between a maze and a labyrinth, there's a huge difference, isn't there? There's no multiple exits, there's no dead ends, there's no wrong turns when you're walking with Jesus. Because the world is a maze, walking with Jesus is a labyrinth because we all have journeys to go. It's not like you, there's not some trials, there's not some turns, there's not some tests that you have to go through. And so we get so hung, hung up on this passage from Luke 18 
about, well, how do, how do you get a camel to fit through this eye of a needle? And, and we talked about what that passage is not. And it's not gr- mangled Greek, and it's not misinterpretation, and it's not some metaphor. Jesus is literally saying it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because they're rich? No. But because they think they can buy their way into this labyrinthian relationship with Jesus Christ. And you can't. And then he goes on a few verses later, and closes up with another thing that people get so hung up on the eye and the camel and the needle thing that they, again, miss the kingdom of God. And then they also miss this, what is impossible with man is possible with God. We talked about that last week. And so what Jesus is saying that by knowing me, not me, but by knowing him, by knowing Jesus Christ, you come into a relationship with me, I can make what was impossible possible. You want in the labyrinth? You can't buy your way in. You can't forge your way in. You can't be smart enough to get your way in. Your good looks aren't going to get you in. Your, your past history is not going to get you in. The only way to get into the relationship is by knowing me. If you want to know God, you want to know me. You want eternal life? You know me. You want peace? Know me. You want love? Know me. You want grace? Know me. Because the world, the maze, cannot offer any of those things. If you don't know Jesus, then your life probably feels like a maze. And if you're like me, you've been there. Left or right, didn't really matter. You just take a stab at it and like, I hope this will work. Maybe this will be better this time. Or maybe this girlfriend will work. Or maybe this situation will work. Or maybe this college will work. Or maybe this job will work. And you just keep bouncing around. And if you're in a maze and in the world, you are lost. If you know Jesus then you have entered the labyrinth. And I want to go back, can we go back to that picture of the overhead view of the labyrinth again? Because I want to pick up on one thing that I didn't mention last week. And it's so, again, it's one of those great spiritual metaphors of why the labyrinth and the maze are so important. You see, the goal of a maze is to get out. The goal of the labyrinth is to get in. We understand that, right? So when, when, if you're walking the world and you're lost, you, you want to get, say, get me out, get me out of this situation, get me out of this bad, whatever it is going on, get me out of this addiction, you just get me out, get me out, get me out. But when you're walking with Jesus, your goal is, get me in, get me in deeper in relationship, deeper in that love of Jesus Christ. Few things we closed out with last week that we need to understand. Moving on in these next few weeks, first of all, you are not alone on your journey. We are in this journey together, not only as brothers and sisters, believers in Jesus Christ. Look around this room again, like we did last week. I'll, I'll wait again, like I did last week. Literally look around the room. There are people in this room who are going through life with you. You might not know those people, but they may be on the exact same journey that you are. They may have been where you are, and you may be where they're going. So encourage someone else to come along for the journey, right? disciple them. We've been talking about that this series before that. So you're not alone on the journey, not only because this room, but because Jesus promised to never leave us or forsake us. The Holy Spirit is here to guide us. You are not alone either by His presence or by the presence of other people who want to do life with you in that labyrinth. All right, the next thing is it's okay to be in a labyrinth. There are only two choices. It's maze or labyrinth. And we're like, I don't like either of those. Neither one of those sound fun. Trust me. It's okay to be in a labyrinth. That's actually kind of where we're supposed to be. You know, if you are in a maze, that there is a better way through. And so everything kind of geared from this point forward in this series is actually hopefully going to be reinforcing you and I's labyrinthian journey. We're not talking about the maze anymore. 
Y'all with me on that? The maze was week one, and we got that and we're done. Now we're diving into what the things are that can hold us up on this labyrinthian journey. Finally, we talked about that, that there is the labyrinth is the entry point into relationship. And again, we went back to the cathedral where after all of hundreds of miles of, of pilgrimages that those medieval people would, would make, finally they get to this cathedral and they said, okay, you've got to walk through this outdoor labyrinth before you come in. Okay, great. It kind of annoys me, but okay, so we walk through this outdoor labyrinth and we thought, okay, now I'm ready to go in. Okay, once you come in now, welcome to another indoor labyrinth and now walk this prayerfully before we come into a time of worship. Like, you're kidding me. Uh, we wouldn't want to do that in this day and age. We wouldn't want to put up with that. We're like, labyrinth, whatever, I'm done, you know. But that's what they did. And people still do that. They make pilgrimages to still do that today. And we find out that once we enter the labyrinth, again, our goal is to get in. It's the entry point into relationship. So today we're going to dive into these three things over the next few weeks. The first one is things we run from on this labyrinth. All right? The next week is going to be things we hide from. And then the final week, I think it's October 15th, we're going to close this series out by talking about things that we ignore. And all three of these things are things that can hold us up on this labyrinthian journey. That's just a fun word to say, so I'll probably just throw it in there a few times, right? But these are the things that can, that can hold us up on our walk with Jesus, all right? The things we run from, again, think Pac-Man, boop, 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 boop. It's all great until those little things become ghosts, and then you're like, run away, you know, and think, you know, with little coconuts and stuff, run away. Never mind, you guys haven't seen that movie, clearly. All right, <laughs> thank you, thank you, someone, we'll talk later, <laughs> we'll have a good time. <laughs> Come over, need um, friends. All right, so there's the things we run from, the, th- the things we hide from, and again, we talked about the ostrich, we like to, to think the ostrich sticks its head in the sand, the ostrich doesn't do that because the ostrich can run faster, but sometimes you and I can get a, a head stuck in the sand mentality in our faith. Well, like, I don't really want to move forward, and I, I'm not, I know I'm not going backwards, you know, I'm not getting more comfortable with the enemy or more comfortable with those addictions, but I'm not necessarily growing closer to Jesus. I'm comfortable where I am. And that's a version of hiding. Finally, the things we're going to talk about is the things we ignore. You and I can have skeletons in our closet and elephants in our rooms of our hearts that sometimes we just want to pretend are not there. Like, hey, my life is great. I'm going good. God is good. My family is great. Don't look at this addiction that's going on. Don't look at... And there's things that you and I ignore. And when you and I, through the power of Jesus Christ, are going to tackle these things over the next few weeks, I really think it can get us going on a journey. So you already here. We're going to dive in today. Things we run from. Think Forrest Gump. All day today. I just felt like running. So we're going to run together. All right? You're going to run with me. Turn to your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 17, and I'm going to recap a lot because I'm not going to stand up here and read four chapters to you. So I'm going to try to breeze through this Cliff Notes version. I do encourage you to go home and read from chapter 17 through, let's call it 20, all right? Let's go with 20, 20, somewhere in there. You'll know where we stop, all right? I do encourage you to go home and actually read this. So A, you know I'm not making stuff up because this stuff is written down and it happened. And B, it's good for you to know so that you're just not relying on my words. So 1 Kings 17, this is where we're going to start. So I want you to see where we're at, all right? And you see now Elijah. There's this guy named Elijah, all right? There's a lot that's happened before this, before the now Elijah the Tishbite. So you and I are Floridians. This guy was a Tishbite. I like the word Floridian better, um, but this, Elijah was a Tishbite, 
this kind of sounds like a disease or something, you know, what do I got, what happened to you? I don't know, I got a tish bite. Um, I take a case of the tish bites, yeah. So before this, King Solomon is just a few chapters before this, all right? And we, we, we talked about King Solomon already. We're going to be hopefully joining me on this journey to read the entire book of Proverbs, all 31 days of all 31 chapters over the next month. Read it aloud, read it with your families, uh, talk about what you've read so that you and I are working on godly wisdom in an age of wisdomness, nothing out there. So anyway, y'all with me on that? So we talked about King Solomon, and he has left the presence of the Lord at the end of his life. He has now had so many wives and so many concubines, and they all want to worship their own individual gods. And at the end of his life, wonderful King Solomon, godly King Solomon, son of David, you know, he's like, you know what? I'm going to let that slide. That's okay. And sometimes I find that ironic because that's kind of where I think our, our culture is right now. You know what? It's okay. Let's just let the little bit slide. So Solomon lets it slide, and he is kind of dismissed from the presence of the Lord, and the kingdom is going to be broken up. So all that kingdom is divided in ten and two, right? Ten tribes go one way, two tribes go another way, and we divide it into Israel and Judah, or a north and south kingdom, right? And between them, between Solomon and this, now Elijah part that we're about to dive into here in chapter 17. You know, Solomon had some sons, Jeroboam, Rehoboam. Um, they both mess up as kings, all right? You can read about that. And there's a, other kings that are in there. We're not going to recap all that. We are going to get to this point to where eventually this guy named Ahab is king. And Ahab has a wife. She's the queen. And her name is Jezebel. And these names are important. So there's Ahab, who's the king, and Jezebel, his wife. And they have totally left worshiping God since Solomon and David. And now they worship these other many gods. They've gone through a monotheistic culture to a polytheistic culture. We worship everybody. And these two top gods, if you will, um, are Baal, B-A-A-L, right? Two A's, B-A-A-L, and Asheroth, right? Woo! They sound fun, right? And these priests of the Lord have gone into hiding, because a lot of them have been killed by Jezebel, and they're hiding in caves, hoping and praying to stay alive. So God tells Elijah to go tell Ahab, and this is where we pick up here in verse or in chapter 17. God tells Elijah to go tell Ahab that there's going to be a three-year drought and famine. King doesn't like these words. I wouldn't like these words. You wouldn't like these words. Wait a second, you're telling me what? You are the bearer of bad news. You are doing this to us. And Elijah said, well, I'm not doing this to you. You have done this to yourselves because you have forsaken the Lord. And now this is what you've brought upon yourself. So after this, God tells Elijah here later in chapter 17 to go into hiding. Go out into the wilderness by this little brook. And he goes out and lives by this brook. And birds bring him food, which is kind of cool. And he's got this little brook for water. And so he stays there. For a long time of this drought and this famine. And God tells him to go visit this woman's house who's going to feed him. So he goes to this woman's house. She's like, actually, I'm fresh out of food. I'm getting ready to make a fire to make the last little bit of flour to make it a bread that we have here. And then me and my son, we're just going to die. We're going to call it quits. Because we have nothing left to eat, nothing left to drink. Elijah says, actually, don't dump out your oil, right? And don't 
Um, you got plenty of food, and don't worry about what's in the bag of flour. Just make me a little cake. Make me a cake, right? Who would like? Go make me a cake. You know, like all right, that sounds good. There's a famine. It's the end of the world. Bake a cake. That's what I say. Um, so Elijah says, "Go make me a cake. Make me this little bread thing, and you're not going to go hungry." And they don't. And this this food just keeps getting replenished, and the oil keeps getting replenished, and they don't run out until eventually the the lady's son gets sick and he dies. And then Elijah prays to God, and God brings this son back to life. Why am I telling you all this? You need to know that Elijah was following the journey. Elijah was in the labyrinth of God. Elijah was listening to God. He was doing what God was telling him to do. We need to know that this is his track record until a certain point, okay? So that's why we're going back into all this. So there in that village of Zarephath is where the lady and her son was, and so he said, okay, go on from this place. It's now nearing the end of this three-year drought that Elijah had told King Ahab about you. All still with me? Still making sense? Okay, all right. So it's the end of this three-year three year drought, and um, now we're into chapter 18, FYI. So if you want to keep turning over, now we're in chapter 18. All right, and now we get start getting to the fun part. Because after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So um, Elijah goes to Ahab and tells him, hey, what, you know, there's going to be rain, but we've got to take care of a problem. We've got to take care of a problem first because God's not going to bring the rain, as we love to listen to this morning. God's not going to bring the rain, and we like to go, make it rain. God's not going to bring the rain until we get this whole Jezebel, Baal worship, other gods worship cleared up because you're still, you still aren't worshiping the Lord. So we've got to get this cleared up. And so he said, you know what, do this. I want you to bring to Mount Carmel, not Caramel, I mean, they're still hungry, but Mount Carmel, right? All of this, all the priests of Baal and all, all the priests of Asherah, and, and bring them all, right? Bring them all, and we're going to set up this little trial, this trial by fire. So this is where it gets fun. So we're in First uh, Kings chapter 18, verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. So everybody is there, and they're all watching. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. And I want to, do, want to pause right here because this is so important in our maze versus labyrinth thing that we're in in this series. Because basically what Elijah is saying, you know what, if the maze is the right way, stay in the maze. But if the labyrinth with Jesus is the right way, then actually move forward and walk in the labyrinth. Because you can't be in a maze and a labyrinth. Do you know why? They're two completely different things. You can't exist in both. You can't be in light and in dark. Right? You can't be dry and wet. Right? You can't be cold and hot. You can't be in a maze and be in a labyrinth. They don't coexist. And for you and I... In the same way, we can't be walking with Christ and walking with the world. You're either in a maze or you're in a labyrinth. But you can't be in both. And Elijah's words remind us of this because they are two completely different things. Picking up, verse 21. And the people didn't answer him a word. Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. I'm the only one left. And sometimes I think you and I need to ask ourselves, if we're the only one left to worship God, would we still do it? If everybody else wasn't, would you and I? 
He says, I'm the only one left, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, well, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken, like, all right, we'll take up your challenge. This sounds good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. Call upon the name of your God and put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. There was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible here in verse 27. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. You know, either he's musing, maybe he's just thinking, you know, he's taking a time out, or he's relieving himself. Maybe your God is just, maybe he's just checked out. Maybe he's just going to the bathroom, you know. Maybe he had a long night last night. Maybe he's, maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's actually not here. Or maybe he's asleep. Maybe your God, and Elijah, I can just imagine in my mind this one dude making fun of and mocking a total of 900 other prophets of Baal and Asherah as they wail and say, oh, bring down the fire. Said, so, you know what, maybe you need to cry louder. Maybe that's the problem. So guess what? They start crying louder. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. So then Elijah said to all the people, he's like, hey, hey, come here. That's what Elijah said. Come here to all the people. Come near to me. And all the people came near, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And it hadn't been maintained. Remember, they hadn't been worshiping the Lord. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of tribes. Remember, 12 tribes who had then been split into the two kingdoms of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And they put the wood and order, and he cut the bull into pieces, and he laid it on the wood, just like the other um, offering had been done for Baal, that nothing happened to. And he said, you know what, fill four jars with what? They're in a drought. Let's just leave this here. They're in a drought and a famine. They've just taken two bulls, and now he says, you know what, I'm going to take two things that could feed a bunch of people, and now bring me what? Water. They're in a drought. Bring me water. Okay, so he says, bring me water. And pour it over everything, right? Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, you know what? Mm, not wet enough. Do it a second time. And they came and they brought more jars and they poured more jars of precious water on everything. He's like, oh, still, still not wet enough. Do it again. So they bring more water to pour over everything. And by this point it says, um, they did the third time and the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. So not only can you imagine everyone's amazement is what's happening, like there's no way this is going to light on fire, you can also imagine their utter dismay and disbelief of like, you know, just imagine like, water, you know, like, what are you doing with all this water and we're so thirsty, we're in a drought, we're in a famine, and you're just taking two bowls and for this, okay, you know what, this better work, Elijah, or Baal, either one, because we are desperate and this is better work. At the time of the offering of the oblation of Elijah, 
Verse 36, the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. And that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And then the fire of the Lord fell. Like just imagine like fire coming out of the sky and, and just boop, like a sniper shot hitting this altar that is soaking wet. Doesn't hit anybody else. Didn't hit the other altar. This is like, you know, just fire down from heaven. God hits a bullseye and boom, this whole thing that was soaking wet, this fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, You know what? Seize those fake people. Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Doesn't sound fun, right? Guess what? That's exactly what Jezebel had done to the prophets of the Lord, the priests of the Lord. So this is like ultimate payback. You know what? Pretty good story so far, right? Fun story. Again, why are, we, why are we still talking about this? We're going to recap all of this at the end. We're going to keep going. Turn over now, just a chapter or a page. Now we're in 1 Kings 19. And this is after this great story. Okay, And there's a really cool bit that happens between where we stopped and the beginning of this 19. I'm not going to go into it today because it's not necessarily relevant. Okay, So we're going to keep on moving. So we're going to pick up in 19, and we read all this, and I told you all this because you and I need to understand that up until this point, Elijah was, again, walking with God. He was in the labyrinth. He was, he was walking with God. He was doing what God was asking him to do. He was standing alone in front of hundreds, if not thousands of people, being the only dude worshiping God, asking and praying for a miracle. He's the only one to, like, this is the, one of the best victories in the Bible, Right? And, and it's not Samson going out with the donkey jawbone and killing a whole bunch of dudes, right? It's not, it's not David and Goliath. This is a, a huge victory. Huge victory for the Lord. One of the best, I think, in the Old Testament, if not, like I said, the whole Bible. A huge victory. And you think after this, he'd be on cloud nine, right? Almost like, yeah, look what God did. And so he gets this note from Jezebel here in verse 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. And now he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. That is the ultimate death threat. Like you kill the priests of this fake god Baal that I worship. I'm coming for you. And you better expect that by this time tomorrow, you're dead. Good luck. I'm the queen. There's nowhere you can hide or you think you can hide. Good luck. And so... You'd think that Elijah, up until this point, we're like, you know what? That's fine. Bring it on, right? Because look what, did you see what God just did? Bring it. Bring it, lady. That's not what Elijah does. Then he was, verse 3, what? Afraid. And he arose and what? Ran for his life. And he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down, and he slept under a broom tree. 
See, even after this victory, Elijah runs. But not to the Lord, right? From Jezebel. See, before it was God's plan for Elijah to go into the wilderness and say, live by this brook and birds are going to bring you food. It's going to be great. You're going to last out the drought and famine there. Cool, God, thanks. And Elijah does that. This time it's not God's plan for Elijah to go run into the wilderness, right? Elijah does that by himself. It's his plan. And he goes just far enough into a desert. He leaves his servant, basically all the possessions that he had because he was a prophet. He didn't really own anything, right? So he had a servant who followed him around. He's like, you know what? You just stay here. Good boy. Good dog. You've been great to me. Have a nice life. And he leaves his servant at the edge of this wilderness. And basically he walks into a desert and he lays down for the sun to cook him. That's it. That's what Elijah does. He just totally gives up because one lady has threatened his life. Literally days, if not weeks before, he stood in front of hundreds and thousands who could have put him to death. And he stood there boldly. And now, one lady threatens his life. And he's afraid. We're going to cover three points from this because there's a lot we can learn about the good from Elijah and the bad from Elijah. Here we go. First, first thing we're going to dive out of this today. There are things we should run from and there are things we shouldn't run from. Again, you're welcome. I'm sure you never thought of this before. This is a no-brainer. <laughs> you're like, I came to church for this. No, you didn't. You came to worship God, hopefully, but this is what you're stuck through now. So you, you, there are things that you should run from and things that you shouldn't run from. And again, this sounds like a no-brainer, but for many of us on our Christian journey through the labyrinth, we often confuse this and we choose not to listen to this. We do. James chapter 4, and I do want you to turn there. James chapter 4, I'll give you a minute. It's deep in the New Testament. So basically, start at the end in Revelation and turn a few pages back. You'll find it a lot easier than starting in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So James, James chapter 4, and we're going to be in verse 7 and 8. And if you need one verse to walk away from today, this is it. This is your verse. Anyone find it? You can read along with me. James chapter 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And in verse, beginning of verse 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And you, if you're reading King James Version or a different version, your version may actually say, flee from the devil, run from the devil, not just resist. But your version might even say, just get as far as you can, as fast as you can, in the other direction from the enemy. And it's not because you're scared. It's because of the direction that you're running. In other words, let's think about this. Maybe you've got a problem. That problem is images on a computer. What should you do in that situation? close the computer, and walk away. And, and again, too many of us in our Christian journey, we're like, I can handle it. I can put up with it. I'm just holy enough. I go to church. I'm working. No, 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 no. What the Word tells us to, and, and to do and what we can learn from Elijah is you need to get as far as you can in the other direction. Not because you're scared, but because you want to go deeper into the labyrinth, right? So close the computer and leave the room. 
What, what, what if you got a, you know, I can't stop myself from, from telling that lie, or I'm really, I really, I love this story that's going on in my friend's life, and I show up to work every day, and I just can't wait to hear the new drama that has happened between her and her boyfriend, and then her ex-boyfriend's girlfriend got involved, it's like, ooh, ooh, it's like a soap opera I sit next to, you know, I can't wait for that. If you can't wait for that, you, you got a, a problem with that. You, you need to get out of that conversation and walk away. If there, if there is something at home that you have a substance, maybe it exists in the refrigerator in fun little glass bottles. Maybe it exists in a plastic bag and a little powder. I don't know what it is. And that might not be you and that's totally fine, but you can probably identify with that. You need to get rid of that. Give it to someone you can trust and get it out of the house because you're like, I, I can't trust myself in this situation anymore, right? Don't go watch this movie that doesn't have those good images in it, Right? I know too many Christians that love horror, slasher, bloody, gory flicks. Have you seen Saw? I haven't seen Saw. I know a lot of people who've seen Saw, and there's a lot of Saws to see, but I haven't seen them. You might be one of the people who've seen Saws. I haven't seen Saws. I'm not... You know what I'm saying with this, right? Don't, Don't let those things come into your life, because little by little, little by little, little by little... Soon, those are going to inhabit your mind and your heart. You're like, I'm not strong enough to get past this anger problem. I just get angry real fast and I blow up and it doesn't have anything to do with my spiritual life and it doesn't have anything to do with my work because it doesn't happen there. It's just when I get home and I've had a tough day with the kids and sometimes my temper flares. I'm not strong enough to handle this on my own. I'm a newsflash. You are. We just read it in James. What did it say? We can go back and reread it. Resist the devil, and who's doing the running? He is. In other words, get as far away from the devil as you can, as fast as you can, and he's going to be the one that's ended up running away with his tail tucked between his legs. Not because of any power that you or I have, but because of power that has been given to us through Jesus Christ. And when you and I stand on that promise, just like Elijah did in the beginning of this story, Man, we can be the only one. We can be the only one who gets and say, you know what, I'm not going to go watch that movie. I'm not going to watch this Game of Thrones thing or whatever that is. I'm not going to go do this drug. I'm not going to hang out with these people. I'm not going to do those things that are okay in the maze. Because I'm in a labyrinth. And I can't be in both. And at some point in time in my life, I've got to choose. I just don't want to choose too late. Because the life could end before the choice. And there, where will you be? See, when you run away from the enemy, you actually move closer into relationship with Christ. Again, think of that labyrinth picture that we had, that overhead view of the journey. Let's put that up again because it's fun, and I want to point at things. Okay? So you come in here, and you're walking with Jesus, right? Right? If you're running away from the enemy, you're going deeper into the labyrinth, right? Or you should be, Right? Because there's only two ways. You're either running towards him or, or you're running away from him. You're either running towards the enemy or away from the enemy. That's what we learn again from James. So if you're going to run from the enemy, make sure you're running to the Lord. And there again is a key difference. And I emphasize those words with the underlines because that's where the emphasis is. The emphasis is on the wrong syllable, right? If you run from the enemy, 
Make sure you're actually running to the Lord. Make sure you're actually going deeper into the labyrinth. And again, these are things that can hold us up on our Christian journey. Let whatever is going wrong in your life, and things are going wrong in your life, I guarantee you, because they're going wrong in mine, that's just life, you know? When things go wrong in your life, let that lead you deeper into a labyrinthian relationship with Jesus. Too many people, too many of us Christ followers, we get this crucial point wrong, because we run from the enemy. Step one, right, yes. But we don't go deeper with the Lord. We just run into another enemy, run into another bad habit, run into another bad choice, run into another bad environment. So how can we run to the Lord? Say, Josh, I need some practical advice. You say run to the Lord. What does that mean? Four ways. Four things you can take home with today. Again, none of this is a no-brainer. But it could be an eye-opener for some of us today. First of all, how can we run to the Lord? Say, I wanna, I've got an enemy. I've got a problem. How am I going to go deeper into that labyrinth? First of all, pray. 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 I've got some piano, I teach piano students, I'm going to brag on them here for a minute, a couple of them are here, hey, um, and uh, I love teaching piano, and fortunately right now I'm in a season of my life where all the, the kids I teach piano, they're, do, they're doing a great job, and I'm thankful for that. That's not always the case, sometimes it's like, oh my gosh, let this half hour end, you know, and sometimes it's like that. It's not like that right now, and the students that I have, they're, they're doing a great job, and I've got one of these students I'm going to pick on this week, because this is what we talked about in our lesson, everyone said, hi Grace. Hi, Grace. And she's like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, most embarrassing ever, right? So I've got a piano student. Grace is doing a great job. She's playing Furlies, the real Furlies by Beethoven, right? And so we're, we're, we're playing through that and doing all this cool classical stuff, and, and she's doing a great job, except I'm going to pick on her because this is a lesson that we can all learn and that I'm learning about myself as I'm teaching her. So when she makes a mistake, she gets real frustrated real fast. Oh, and she just wants to dive right back into trying, well, maybe I'll get it right this time. Oh, I messed up. Oh, well, maybe I'll get it right this time. I messed up. Oh, maybe I'll get it right this time and mess up. And I did that when I was young, and so I can identify that in her. So I'm not, I'm not picking her out. This is something eventually all piano students go through, right? And we talked about something this past week after she played the same three measures for 17 minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'm that guy, you know? And we called it practicing the pause, Practicing the pause. So you know what? No, no, no. You're rushing right back into that same pattern again, and you're not going to get it right because I've already identified that your hands aren't set in the right place, your fingers aren't in the right place, and I can tell you're going to miss that F sharp before you've even played it. I've been doing this long enough. You've got to practice the pause. Guess what prayer is? It's practicing the pause. And if you want to go deeper into the labyrinth, you want to, you want to run to the Lord, practice the pause. Imagine what our life would be like if you and I practiced the pause before we posted that thing on social media. What would our life look like if, if we practiced the pause before we turned on the news or vented about the president that you either like or hate, right? Well, what would it be like if we practiced the pause before we spoke to our kids in a harsh tone? What would it look like if we practiced the pause before, before we went into our job or our work to deal with that tough or life situation? We said, I'm just going to stay here for five minutes. Life can, can handle five minutes. I'd rather be three minutes late to work and have my heart right with God than early and be a mess. Like, what, it, what it would it be like if you and I practiced the pause of prayer? That's one way that we're going to, I want to encourage you this week to run to the Lord. Go deeper in the labyrinth. Second thing, read the Word. This book that you have 
And if you don't have one, grab one on your way out. A lot of you have it on your smartphones and devices. That's great. Those go everywhere with you. No excuses anymore, right? Read the Word. I want to read this. I found these, these statistics. Statistics. 33% of high school grads never read another book. Let that sink in for a second. 33% of high school graduates never read another book. 42% of college grads have never read another book. 57% of new books are not read to completion. These are just books, right? 70% of all U.S. adults have not read a book in the last five years. 80% of U.S. families did not buy or read a book in all of 2013. The more someone reads, the more they are likely to understand the emotions of others. You know that? How, how much truer could it be for this? Right? And also then, how sad. If these are the statistics for every, 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 every other book besides this, what do we discover? There's not a lot of people reading this. Because if that were true, our churches would be different, our world would be different, our country would be different. Because we talked about it last week. Jesus changes everything, right? Read the Word. You want to go deeper into the labyrinth, read the Word. It's one of the reasons why we're doing this Proverbs challenge. Read the, get in the Bible. Read a chapter, a day, for 31 days. I'll bet we can't do it. I'll hope we can. Third thing we can do to dive deeper into a relationship and run into the Lord instead of from the enemy. Worship Him. Worship Him. You do not have to be in a church with a band and hundreds of people to worship. And a lot of times we, we make Sundays such a big deal, and Sundays are important, but we make them such a big deal. And they're culturally a big deal in America right now. Sundays are the big deal. It's the worship time. It's the concert time. That's what it feels like in a lot of places. That's hopefully not what this is for you, and it's hopefully never going to be what it is for us here at True Life. You do not have to be in a church with bands and hundreds of people in order to worship. Some of the most powerful worship experiences that I've ever had have been alone in my car, listening to music and bawling my eyes out like a baby. They've been in a garage with three people. They've been in a band rehearsal with just a couple folks gathered together with no agendas. You want to dive deeper in the labyrinth? Worship Him. Put on music in your car that exalts Him. Sing along with it. When no one is listening, no one cares how you sound like, sing along as loud as you can. Be that crazy person in the car next to you. Be like, what are they doing? You know? Be that person. you got to worship Him. Because if, if your heart has a problem worshiping Him alone, newsflash, you're not going to worship Him here. There's, there's no way that can happen. Last thing. Fellowship with other believers. Surround yourself with people who are running the same direction you are. You guys ever been in an airport or a stadium and you're that one person that's going against the flow of traffic? And maybe you've got like a suitcase and big luggage and stuff and everybody is coming off the plane or they're getting out of the movie or they're, they're going to this end of the stadium and you're trying to walk in and they're trying to walk out or whatever. You've been there, right? And it's like, oh my, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. Bump, and you get a bump and you're like, your progress is so slow. And it's so frustrating and people are bumping into you. 
how nice would it be to walk in the same flow as everybody else? What we learn is that against the flow is going to be what you're doing in your Christian walk. But with other believers, fellowshipping, guess what? You're now, ah, this is nice. You're all going the same direction. Fellowship with other believers. Last thing for this morning that we can learn from this Elijah passage. You are running somewhere. You are. You and I, we are all running somewhere. You're like, I'm sitting down. What are you talking about? In our lives, in either the maze or in the labyrinth, you're, you, you're running somewhere. The question is where? Where are you running? Because as we talked about with that big picture, again, of the overhead view of that labyrinth, you're either running deeper into the labyrinth or you're going the way out, right? We get this. Yes, nods. Yeah. You're either going deeper in a relationship with Jesus Christ or you're going the opposite way of relationship with Jesus Christ. And you're like, well, wait a second. Hold on, Josh. I got you. What if I just stop? If I just stop right here and I'm comfortable, that's actually what we're going to be talking about next week. And it's limbo, these things that can hold us up on our labyrinthian journey. You see, not even the prophet Elijah, he, not even him made all the right decisions. And we're like, oh, well, this is Elijah, big guy, right? Well, yeah, big guy, big guy in the Bible. Not for all the right reasons. Elijah, even Elijah didn't make all the right decisions. He ends up suicidal in a desert after giving up on God after one of the most incredible stories in the Bible. And if you and I have entered the labyrinth, it means that God has done something amazing in your life. So guess what? Run accordingly. Don't give up on the victory that has been won for you and will be won for you when you're stuck in the middle of what the world wants you to believe. So today may mean that you need to make different choices this week than you did last week. You may walk out of here and you may need to stop doing that thing. You may need to pick up one of these four habits that maybe haven't been a part of your life so much. Maybe it means you pray, not just for God is great, God is good, let us thank Him for this food, amen, and we eat, and that's when you pray. That's not a relationship. That's not even a Hallmark greeting card. You know, that's just like, come on, get into relationship. And this week, and I, this series begs us, not from my leaning, but from the Holy Spirit, this begs us to change our lifestyle, to take out what is bad, to add in what is good, so that you and I can, as Paul says in the New Testament, run this race together. Because you and I, we're running somewhere. So the question is, where are we running? You may need to pray more. Read the Word. Worship just by yourself. Try it. I promise. Fellowship with other believers. You and I, we're running somewhere. So the question is, again, where are we running? My hope again in this series is that you and I run not just from the enemy but to the Lord 